Well, good morning, church. So glad that we can come together and be here today. Uh, really glad that we can continue to talk about what does it mean for us as a church, as a people, to do good and to be brave. And if you've kind of been in and out this summer like a lot of us, uh, I'll catch you up real quickly. We're talking about the story of Moses and the rise and fall of true courage. And this morning, I want to just begin with this really simple question. Is there any area of your life where you lack the courage to do the right thing? Is there any area of your life right now where you're lacking the courage to do what you know is the right thing to do? We're talking about Moses, and if you don't know much about the story of Moses, we've been kind of walking through it the last few weeks, and you may know because Moses was sort of a famous character in the Bible, and even people that don't know much about God or don't go to church, they probably know about Moses because Moses, when he was born as a baby, was, was rescued by a princess, the princess of Egypt, uh, when he was floating in a basket in the Nile River. Moses went on to do incredible things like deliver uh, Israel from Egypt with the ten plagues that crossed the Red Sea. Uh, he went on and, and gave the people the Ten Commandments, some incredible things that Moses did. But if you know much about Moses, you know that he was far from perfect And that over and over again, it seemed like Moses really struggled to be a part of the story of God that God wanted him to be a part of. And for me, and I hope for you, that gives you some comfort. That Moses, despite all the amazing things he did and all the incredible things he was a part of, he was a normal normal guy. He really struggled through the story. And today is is no different. I I want to ask you this. Has there ever been a time... Where you've just been really terrified, um, like of someone or somebody. My daughter Ella Grace, um, she has this fear, and I asked her if I could share this. Actually, it was her idea. Um, she's terrified of mascots. Anybody else in the room have this fear? Like, if we go to a basketball game, a baseball game, a football game, if there's one of these, you know, people-sized creatures dressed in a costume walking around, she wants to be as far away from them as humanly possible. So when our kids were younger, and, and still sometimes we'll, we'll take them to this place, there's a place called Chuck E. Cheese. Any of you familiar with this place? It's kid heaven, right? I mean, they've got arcade games, they've got tickets and prizes, pizza and music. Well, they call it pizza. Anyway, um, kids love it. Kids love it. And we love to take our kids there, and they love going there. But there's, there's one thing about Chuck E. Cheese that, that Ella Grace in particular can't stand, and it's the fact that roaming around Chuck E. Cheese is this life-size mascot. And I don't know who thought it was a good idea that in this place that in every other way is a virtual kid heaven to make the mascot of Chuck E. Cheese a life-size rat, like a six-foot-tall mascot rat walking around the place. And she's terrified of this thing, right? I'll never forget one day we're sitting there eating our pizza in our booth and I can see behind Ella Grace comes walking this six-foot rat they call Chuck E. Cheese. And he's going to go in to give Ella Grace like a hug from behind, thinking this will be a special moment for this sweet child. As soon as she catches a glimpse out of the corner of of her eye of that that rat arm coming down, she jumped under the table so fast. She didn't want any part of that. She's terrified of those things. Crazy. This is what we do, though, isn't it? This is what a lot of us do. Like when we see that person coming or that situation coming or that, that, that thing where there's tension or there's a problem or we're uncomfortable, a lot of us duck and cover. We run and we hide. Now, I'll, I'll admit that that's not true of all of us. Some of you, some of you love conflict. Some of you love confrontation. Then there's the rest of us, right? How many of you absolutely hate personal conflict, 
How, how many of you hate confrontation? I need to meet with all of you after to talk to you about something. I'm kidding. <gasps> Some of us despise this. We despise having to come face to face with a person or a problem or a situation or have an uncomfortable conversation uh, because it brings up something within us that we're just, we're just uncomfortable with that. And that tension, it just, oh, it just eats us up, right? We hate it. We hate those uncomfortable moments. We hate, and, and the problem isn't just that we hate it. The problem is, is when we know it's the right thing to do to confront that problem or to confront that person or to confront that situation, we know it's the right thing to do, but we just can't bring ourselves to do it. And if you've ever been in, in this situation, if you've ever had this experience, you know what happens when you see that person coming or that problem coming or that situation around the corner, like you, you jump under the table, right? You avoid it at all cost. And, and what you do is you come up with a million reasons why it's just not a good idea, right? I mean, I mean, right now is not a good time. It's not a good time for me. It's not a good time for them. You know, tomorrow would be better. I can send a text or an email. That would be better. That would be, that would be more effective. We say it's, truthfully, it's just easier, right? We're going to do everything we can to avoid the person, the problem, the situation that's coming our way. We're going to duck and cover because even though we know it's the right thing to do, we just can't bring ourselves to do it. And it's because we're afraid. It's because there's some fear involved in what might happen if that we don't want to do that, right? And so what we do is we let that fear, we let that turn into avoidance. We think maybe if we just wait, it'll go away, but that's not true, right? And you know this, a life of avoidance is not a life of freedom. And that's not the life that God wants for you and me. And a life of avoidance, not only is it not a life of freedom, but it's also, often it's a symptom of disobedience. It's a symptom of us not having the courage to do exactly what we know we should do. And that's exactly what happened to Moses. Moses, if you know his story, he ends up, he ends up, you know, born as a Hebrew, rescued by a princess for a very specific purpose, but then, but then he's raised as an Egyptian, then he's exiled because of murder, and now he's out in the desert. And we're going to pick up a story today. It's in Exodus 2, so if you have a Bible or the Bible app on your device, if you want to open that up or turn that on, we're going we're gonna to be fast-forwarding through part of the story today. But I want you to see what exactly happens to Moses at this point in the story where he's trying in a very specific way, in a very explicit way, to avoid exactly what God is calling him to do. And if you're anything like me, you may find yourself in the story too. He spent 40 years avoiding Egypt, 40 years posing as a shepherd for another man's sheep, and it's during that time that this happens in Exodus 2, verse 23. It says, years passed, and the king of Egypt died. And this, this is an important little nugget here, because who was that king of Egypt? Who was that Pharaoh? That was, that was the man whose daughter took Moses in to be her son. That was the man who Moses, at one point in his life, for the first 40 years of his life, called Grandpa. He's died. He's gone. There's a new Pharaoh in town, a new sheriff in town. But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and they, their cry rose up to God. 
And God, hearing their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel, and he knew it was time to act. God knows and God hears the cries and the prayers of his people who've been living up under oppression. But it's been 40 years since Moses has been to Egypt. It's been 40 years since, since he left because he killed somebody. It's been 40 years that he's been posing as a shepherd in a foreign country for another man's sheep. And it's in that moment that God comes to Moses and finds him where he is, as he is, and he has this conversation. And if you've never read this part of the story, I want to encourage you to read it later today because in Exodus 3, it's one of the most famous stories in your Bible where Moses has a conversation with God who appears to him in a burning bush. Moses goes to the bush because it's burning, but it's not burning up. I think you and I would go check that out as well. And it's in that moment that God speaks to Moses. And this is what God says in Exodus 3, verse 7. The Lord told him, told Moses, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go... For I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. God essentially says, hey, you can run and hide in obscurity. You can run to a foreign country, but your hiding is over. Your hiding is over. It's time to get back in the game. I've heard, I know, I see, I care, and I'm calling you to get back into the game and to deliver my people from their oppression out of darkness, into light, out of slavery, into freedom. And Moses is like, whoop, time out. Wait, what? What? You want me to do what? God, I'm a nobody shepherd in a foreign land. I haven't been there in 40 years. My own people don't want me there because I, I, I abandoned them. The Egyptians don't want me there because I've offended them. And you want me to go back as a nobody shepherd from Midian and to go approach the most powerful ruler in the known world. Clearly, God did not know what he was talking about. And Moses is going to try to argue his case to prove his point, right? <laughs> so skip down to 3 verse 11. So Moses protested to God. And listen to his first reason. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Now, I love this because it's at this point in the story that Moses is just completely human, right? And he's going to begin to argue with God, which I would question his intelligence there. But he's going to, he's going to start to second-guess God and God's plan and saying, what are you talking about? Who am I? And he roots his reasoning in his own personal insecurity, the reason he doesn't want to do what God wants him to do is because of his own personal insecurity, because of his own self-doubt. And I wonder, have you ever done this? Have you ever come to know in a moment what God wanted you to do, knowing what the right thing to do was, being convicted about that? And the reason you didn't do it was because of your own personal insecurity. 
And Moses is standing there before God, who's before him in a burning bush, having a conversation with the God of Israel. And he's worried about what he can't do. Who am I to do that? But Moses isn't done protesting God. This is going to get fun. If you skip down to verse 313, we see Moses' next objection. But Moses protested. If I go to the people of Israel, the God of your ancestors, if I go to the people and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? So Moses begins with his own personal insecurity. Who am I to go do this? And then he moves to this question of who are you? He moves to this question of, hey, God, I've got doubts about you and who you are and what you say you can do. Have you ever done this? Have you ever doubted that God is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do? And if you would trust him, he would follow through? Or maybe wonder if he wouldn't? His next objection is not personal insecurity. It's I've got doubts about you, God. And to be fair, okay, in Moses' defense, he's been out, you know, manning sheep for 40 years. His people, the Israelites, have been in Egyptian bondage captivity for, say, some 400 years. It's been a long time since anyone has seen God, heard from God. It's been a long time since the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses says, if I go back, who do I say sent me? Who are you? I've got doubts, God. I've got doubts about you. It's a pretty bold thing to say to God, by the way. But then in chapter 4, verse 1, we see Moses' next objection because he's not done second-guessing the God he's speaking to, by the way. I have to keep coming back to that. He's talking to the God of the universe, and he's doubting him. So in Exodus 4, verse 1, Moses protests again. And listen to his next excuse. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? So he starts with his own sin of security, and then he goes on to, to doubting God, and now he's going to go start blaming them. You ever done this? God, I cannot do what you want me to do, and it's all their fault. <laughs> I can't do what you want me to do because, you know, what will they think? What will they do? What if they do, don't do what they should do? I can't do what you want me to do, and it's not my fault. And maybe it's not your fault, but it's certainly their fault. You know, I cannot do what you want me to do, and it's, it's their fault, God. He's moved on to blaming them. And sometimes we do this too. We look around to blame others for our own disobedience. Have you ever done that? I know you have. You got caught and you said your sister did it. You know, this is what we do. <laughs> we play the blame game and we push off on others our responsibility to do what we know we should do. But Moses isn't done yet. Skip down to chapter 4, verse 10, and Moses pleads with the Lord. Like, he really wants out of this deal. Do you get the feeling yet? Oh, Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been. I'm not now. Even though you've spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. God, I, ain't, I can't talk real good. <laughs> like, clearly, you know. I know you're God. I know you're the giver of every good and perfect gift. I know you're the giver of every spiritual gift, but you forgot to give me the spiritual gift of speaking, so I can't do this, you know? I can't do As if the God who is calling Moses won't then equip Moses to do exactly what God is calling Moses to do. But again, you and I do the same thing, right? God, I can't do what you want me to do because I'm not any good at that. I know they asked me to do this. I know I need to volunteer for that. I know I need to serve you in this way or be a part of that ministry or help out in this way or do this for you in the church or in the community. But I don't have that spiritual gift. I can't do that. 
as if the God who called you won't equip you to do what he wants you to do in his kingdom for the benefit of his church, for the spread of the gospel, for the glory of his name. As if God would call Moses to do something significant and then abandon him in the moment. Man, God would never do that. But Moses still isn't done. Chapter 4, verse 13. Moses again pleads with the Lord. Lord, please, send anyone else. Like, anyone. This is five times now. Moses has told God, no. Moses has asked God for a way out. Moses has said, God, could you find somebody else? Could you find somebody else who can do what you're asking me to do? Because I can't do it, God. If you've ever wondered if our God is a patient God, the answer is yes. (laughs) Extremely patient. Extremely kind. Extremely gracious. Five times now, Moses keeps coming back to God, saying, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I I don't want to do it because of my personal insecurity. I don't want to do it because I've got doubts about you. I don't want to do it because because of them. I don't want to do it because I don't have that spiritual gift. God, will you please find somebody else? To which God says, no, Moses, you are my guy. You are my man. And after nearly two chapters of Moses arguing with God, Moses finally says, okay. And don't miss this. Because Moses almost missed out on what may have been one of the greatest stories ever told. Because of his unwillingness to be obedient to God. And to do what God wanted him to do. But because Moses was able to summon a small amount of courage. And follow that through with obedience to God. You and I know the rest of the story. You know where the story is going. Israel. Probably at this point in time, over a million people. Are going to be set free. From 400 years of captivity and led out of Egypt in the middle of the night. After God sends plague after plague, 10 plagues, Pharaoh finally breaks, calls for Moses in the middle of the night and says, get out of here. And Moses gathers the people in a matter of moments and all of them leave Egypt never to return again. And all that happened. All of that happened. Because Moses obeyed God. You may know the story of a man by the name of William Wilberforce. He died July 29th, 1833, so about this time, a long time ago. In the late 1700s, he was a teenager, and it was that time that these slave ships were going from Britain to the coast of Africa. And every year, They were taking 35,000 to 50,000 people, capturing them as slaves, transporting them in horrible conditions back to Britain to be sold into slavery. No doubt, one of the darkest times in the history of the world. But William Wilberforce was, was one man among several people who had the courage to be obedient, to do what was right, and to stand up for what was right. And because of his courage over time, it led to the end of slavery and in his country. And he said, William Wilberforce said this, I want you to hear these words. 
He said, a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. A private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. In other words, a private faith that is void of obedience, a private faith that doesn't do what it knows is right, is that really any faith at all? No, no. And I think we need to hear those words again today, church. We can't be content to have a private faith that says I show up at church and check a box and go home and everything is good and everything is gravy. That's not it. We can't be content to say that we, we believe in God and, and show up once a week and, and let that be the total sum of, of our faith and our experience and our relationship with Jesus Christ. No, that's not it. Our faith has to move us into action to do what we know is the right thing to do and to have the courage to do it. Moses almost missed out on one of the most epic stories ever told. He he was in the moment five times he was asking God to live an uneventful, unknown life in a foreign country and to die without any of that ever being told. And God said no. And Moses finally Agreed, And because of his obedience, he's now stepped into one of the greatest stories ever told. A story that would not only be the story of Israel leaving captivity and walking into freedom, but a story that will be our story of how we walk out of captivity and into freedom through Jesus Christ. But it all began with his courage and his obedience that led to their deliverance. And I want to ask you, will you have the courage? What is it in your life right now that you lack the courage to do? What's the right thing that you know you should do and you, for whatever reason, are lacking the courage to do? And will you have the courage to do it? We've said this before, that you never know what hangs in the balance when you choose to do the right thing. You know another way to say that? You never know what hangs in the balance when you choose to obey God. And get this, your obedience is hardly ever just about you. Your obedience almost always impacts others. Don't ever think for a moment, don't ever believe the lie of Satan that if you're disobedient in this moment, it just affects you. Your obedience is always more than just about you. Your obedience always affects you and those around you and generations after you, your children and your grandchildren and their children, and on and on the story goes. Your obedience to do the right thing in the moment, to follow God. Have you ever been before God in prayer and you have a moment where you're convicted where you know what the right thing to do is, or you're here and you're in worship and you have an experience with God and you know what the right thing to do is. But for whatever reason, you can't summon the courage to do it. You feel prompted by the Holy Spirit to reach out to that person or get involved in that situation or do whatever the next right thing is in the moment. But for whatever reason, you can't summon the courage and you tell yourself it's just about you. It's not about you. Your obedience is always more than just about you. And here's what I know is true. That if you can summon, like Moses, a small amount of courage and be obedient, it can lead to ultimate deliverance. And what I want to ask you to do is to do it this week. Whatever it is. It's probably different for every one of us, and that's okay. But my guess is that in every one of our lives, there is something hanging out there. There's some tension, there's some problem, there's a person, there's a relationship, 
There's something. And I want to ask you, like Moses, can you summon a small amount of courage to be obedient, to do what you know is right, and just test God and see if that doesn't lead to your deliverance too? Church, if you would, let's, let's stand together. The reality is God isn't done delivering people from bondage. And that God would love to deliver some people today. And today, if you feel like you're being held captive by any situation, problem, sin in your life, I want you to know our God was a deliverer and our God is a deliverer. And obedience always leads to deliverance. And as far as I can tell, deliverance always depends on obedience. You may remember it was once said of Jesus in Philippians 2 verse 8 that Jesus, this is how, this is how much Jesus thought about obedience. Jesus humbled himself and catch this, in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus' obedience to God to die a criminal's death on a cross led to our deliverance. And I want to ask you today to have the courage to step into that deliverance. What would it be like? What would it be like for Riverside to be a church of people who are always choosing to be brave and to be obedient and to do what God wants us to do? What would it be like for us to read the red letters of Jesus, every one of us, and for us to just live those out and do them? What would it be like for us to be a place where, I know we're far from perfect, but we're leaning hard into trying to do exactly what it is in every moment, in every situation, in every relationship, what it is we know would honor Christ and be obedient to the heart of God? What would that be like? Oh boy, talk about a church. Talk about a church. So this morning, I want to ask our shepherds and their wives to make themselves available around the room. And if there's anything you would like us to pray for for you, if they can serve you just by simply, simply ushering you into the presence of God, where you can find that deliverance, where you can be obedient and confess what it is and experience the deliverance of God in that moment, I want to encourage you to do it this morning. And, and listen, I'll just show you my cards. I would love for this moment to be the biggest moment every church at Riverside where we just have people praying with people. Because your obedience always leads to deliverance. And I know that prayer always leads us into the presence of God and it's in his presence where we find the help and the healing and the hope that you and I need. Don't be afraid to approach God. I know there's people we, like, we don't like to approach. Don't ever be afraid to approach God. So when you and I approach God, we always find open arms. And because we can approach God, because he has open arms, you and I, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be, we don't have to be slaves of fear. We don't have to, 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 to wander around hoping for a way out. Because you and I can approach God, we can experience freedom every single day. So if we can pray for you this morning, we would love to pray for you. If you want to step into these waters and, like Jesus, die to yourself 
What we learn from Jesus is when you die to yourself, you experience eternal life. And if you want to die to yourself today and experience eternal life in these waters of baptism, we believe when you're raised up from those waters, you are literally a new life, a new creation. You literally experience deliverance from darkness and into light. If that's you, man, come find one of us as well. We'd love to pray for you and see that happen today. Whatever it is you need to do this week, I want to ask you to have the courage to do it, to be obedient to God, and see if that doesn't lead to deliverance. Let's sing.